And on the parent's side, the parent's side said reloader because the parent could take that to the retail store, put money on it, and then remotely, wherever the student was, that student would be able to spend money off the gift card. Now think a moment. Okay, reloader. What do you think the other one was called? Freeloader. <laughs> like that, huh? I don't know what kind of parent would do that to their children, but we found it to be very convenient <clears throat> as we uh, used that a while back. And just as the parent of the college student owned the gift card and distributed the money and hoped that the student would make wise decisions with it, we're going to look at a story from Scripture today where a landowner distributed money to his servants in the hopes that they too would make not wise decisions, wise, wise stewardship decisions with the money that was distributed to them. If you have a Bible, open it to Matthew chapter 25. We'll be looking at this parable from verses 14 through 30. And I've entitled it today, Hard Currency and God's Economy. Let me explain first what hard currency is. Basically, hard currency is a globally traded currency that is reliable and stable. It's something that has strong fiscal policies. It's something that has political stability. One might say that the U.S. dollar is hard currency because it has global implications. Soft currency, on the other hand, is something that's not quite as stable. In fact, I was reading recently um, in the country of Zimbabwe, there was uh, a recent economic collapse because inflation just went skyrocketing through the roof and they opted to use American dollars instead of Zimbabwe dollars. So much so that the American dollars were going through so many hands they began this little uh, cottage business of washing and cleaning, literally, soap and water, washing the American dollars and hanging them out to dry because there was no other currency for Zimbabwe except for American dollars. It was, I thought that was amazing. And uh, that's a soft currency. What we're talking about is hard currency. And we're going to find out what hard currency is in God's economy. Now, we'll look at this parable as recorded by Matthew to find out what that is. And we're going to approach it in a very simple way. I have a simple mind, so I want... This is, this is how I'm going to understand it. I have to look at it with observation. I have to look at it with interpretation and application. Observation means you look at the, look at the text and say, what is it saying? The next step is interpretation, obviously. You look at it and say, what does it mean? And then the final step is application. So what? What does it mean for me? Uh, now, the danger is, and, and this is just human nature, too often we just simply jump straight to, what does it mean for me? Can't do that. Got to take those first two steps first. In fact, if that were the case, um, we might look at this parable and look at the five, two, and one talents and say, well, it must be that it's God's will that Christian ma Christians make lots of money. Now, if that's the case, then you and I definitely are not in God's will, are we? Before we look at observation, let me say something first. The context of this is the uh, latter part of the book of Matthew. This is towards the end of Jesus' life. Much of what we find in the Gospels is Jesus' teaching. It's stories of what he did, miracles that he did, but it's also um, parables. And especially if you read through um, um, Matthew and through Luke, you see many of the parables. This comes towards the end of his life, and much of what is written in the Gospels 
many of the letters, many of the words there have to do with the latter, even the last week of his life. So that's the context. And you have to look at the context. Obviously, you have to look at the context and to see exactly what it is it's saying. You've got to make some observations about it. First thing is, it's a parable. Okay? A parable is a story to illustrate. It's not meant to teach truth. It's meant to illustrate truth. Big difference there. And parables are so helpful because we like stories. I used to have a professor at Moody um, who, who would teach that way. Would be, he, he would tell stories. Drove some students crazy because they wanted an outline. But there'd be one thing he wanted to get across, and he'd tell us a story. We all love stories. And some of those things that I remember from years ago, I remember the stories and I remember what he taught because it was a story. So this is what a parable is. A parable is essentially an extended metaphor. A metaphor is a word picture. A metaphor is something to help us visualize what it is that, is try- that Jesus is trying to communicate. A metaphor, another example of metaphor might be um, from the New Testament, from Ephesians, where Paul writes about the body of Christ is like the human body. You know, there's an arm and there's an eyeball and there's a leg and so forth. But you don't literally see the arm flopping around in the chair or the eyeball bouncing down the, down the street. You, you, but it's a picture for us, so it helps us understand that we're all put together. That's a metaphor. A parable is an extended metaphor. It's a story. It's not meant to be precisely exactly what it is. We don't look at it that way. We don't pick it apart. We just say, this is a story. What's he trying to get across? Jesus used parables to both reveal and conceal truth. So he used it to reveal truth to his disciples. Usually they got it. Sometimes they didn't and they have to ask him. And also to conceal truth from those who were not following him. Because then the, the, uh, maybe the Pharisees or whoever would just stand by and scratch their heads and say, what is the sense of that story? So he used this. It's a very important instrument to get across a, a significant truth. So when he says it will be like, he's not saying this is the kingdom of heaven. It's going to be like this, and here's a word picture just to tell you what it's going to be like. And he uses something that they are familiar with. A wealthy landowner leaves on a journey, uh, commissions his servants not just to maintain the estate, but to keep the business going and make a profit. Now, there's four, four characters in this story. I'm going to go through some observations. A passage like this, you can make so many observations. I'm just going to touch on a few of them. All right? But there are four characters in the story. There's the landowner, and there are the three servants. Modern-day equivalent, you might think of it this way. Just kind of help us, help us out, because none of us are the wealthy landowners with the, uh, the thousands of dollars to hand out. It might be something like um, a founder and president of a corporation has an executive team who carries out and manages the day-to-day operations. That's what it's like. So when we talk about servants, we can kind of say it's almost like employees because um, with employees, he, he, he um, commissions them not just to maintain the state, estate, but to keep it, the business going and to turn a profit. It's part of their job. In this case, he gave them talents to do it. Let's talk about talents for a moment. And again, we're, we're moving rather quickly through some of these observations. I don't want to get hung up on exactly what this is. In fact, if you look into it and research and try to figure out a, what a talent is, you get a number of different um, opinions and observations. The point isn't to figure out exactly how much money it was. It was a lot of money. Someone estimated up in the millions of today's dollars. 
So it is, as he tells this parable, he's not te- talking about throwing out a few pennies. He's talking about a very significant amount of money. Some say, yeah, some say up to uh, $5 million. The point isn't the amount. You could say today several thousand dollars, a few thousand, or one thousand. Here's another observation. He gave out different amounts. Five, two, and one. That's interesting. Reflects kind of how it was in Jesus' time. Reflects kind of how it is now. Look around you. Do all possess an equal amount of capital and earning power? Of course not. So Jesus' story is illustrating reality. Why the three different amounts? Could have been competence. Could have been the amount of trust level he had him then. We don't know, but we just know that there are different amounts that the landowner chose to give out. And it's interesting, the first, two stu- the first two servants, in some unknown manner, we don't know how, through hard work, investment, something, doubled the original amount that he had given them. Another observation is there evidently was some type of relationship between the landowner and his servants. Now, we'll get to this later. But you get that, kind of get that when you look down in verses 24, 25, and so forth. When you see the, the third servant, the one-talent servant, describes his master in a very different way. So he had a different relationship with the three different servants. And also there was, notice in there, there was a journey. Landowner left. And there was a day of accountability. The landowner came back. And finally, one last observation. Landowner, landowner took a risk. He realized he could have taken all eight talents and gone and buried them in the ground, and then that would have been safe. He could have come back, would have had him good to go. No, he didn't. He's, he took a risk. He says, I'm going to give these. I'm going to see what they can do with them. He could have lost all of it, but he took a risk. Well, how do we interpret this parable? What does it mean? Well, the landowner, this is, and some of this is straightforward. Okay, some of you are looking, with, looking at me like, of course, we know what this is. Okay, but let's go through it. Let's make sure we understand. The landowner, obviously, is God, looking for a return on his investment. The journey, we could say, is now, as Christ came to earth that first time, he is coming back, and here we are in the meantime. He's there, we're here. And the servants, that could be us. And the talents... What he's given us. This is where we're going to land eventually. In fact, if you look it up, um, some believe that the word talents from this particular passage, that's where we get our English word for talents. But he gave them out. He distributed to them. Not entirely restricted to material wealth. It's definitely one aspect of stewardship. But it's more that Jesus has in mind here. Our talents, who we are, what we have available to us, our abilities. Every believer has a supernatural spiritual gift. This is taught elsewhere in Scripture. Every believer has at least one. That's one of the talents. That's something that God has given us that he expects us to use for his glory. Some of us have some very natural abilities or talents. Some are very gifted at creating or decorating. Some are gifted at administration some are gifted naturally at, at things like accounting. My wife, my wife is gifted at accounting. She's very good at it. The other day I was asking her, uh, we were saving up for something, and I said, so how much do we have in that particular account? <laughs> 
whips out the laptop and starts flipping through all these Excel spreadsheets, taking this formula here, put it here, click this tab, and like, whoa, 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 whoa. She just, can you just help me out? Just tell me the number at the end so I can know what that is. But she's good at that kind of stuff. I don't know how she does that. Um, but she's very good at it, and she she's sends us to kind of dumb it down for me. Um, but uh, we all have natural, about, uh, natural talents and abilities. Um, some of us have learned skills. Some of us have gone through training for different things. Some of us have the ability to make money and know how to do that. And this is what encompasses the word talents. Don't think of it as just money. Okay? It's who we are, what God has blessed us with. And also, there will be a day of accountability. We will be held accountable. This is one of the points that Jesus is trying to get across here. There will be a day of accountability. We know this from other scripture as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Paul writes this. Um, 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. It will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. There is a day of accountability. Jesus isn't trying to pinpoint precisely when this is. Don't get hung up on that. This is a story. The point is, we'll be held accountable. That's what he's trying to get across. Note also the actions of the servants. And this is getting, getting to the core of what Jesus wanted to communicate here. Notice the action of the servants. Not how much we get, not where the landowner is going or how long he's going to be gone. It's what we do with what we have now. For that short period of time, relatively speaking, that the landowner was gone, he expected his servants to do something with the talents that he gave them. There weren't any specific instructions recorded there. But there was the expectation that responsibility came along with those talents. Two important words. There was an expectation and there was responsibility. And that has to do with our talents as well. Notice also there in here, we're still interpreting, we're still saying, what does it mean? There were, there were results there were rewards. There is a corresponding reaction. God responds to our actions here and now. There's going to be a day, that day of accountability, and he will respond to what we have done with what he has blessed us with. It's important to note that as we interpret that and realize that Jesus is saying, not just there's a day of accountability, God's going to say something about what we've done. There's also a relationship to the landowner is much like our relationship to God. And notice the difference between the three servants. There's a difference, remember we said something about that? There's a different relationship there. Relationship matters to God more than the gifts he distributes. He wants relationship. Many applications in here. Many applications. I'm going to touch on a few and land on one. First, there's a return on investment. We will be held accountable. Tell me, tell you, uh, let me ask you this. 
what motivation would a college student have to study if there were no test? Very little. In fact, with some college students, there are some reading assignments where all you have to do is simply read the book and record that you read it. How well do you read that quickly while you're on Facebook? There are other assignments where you're reading the material and you know that the prof is going to pick that apart and find something very obscure in that material and ask you about it on a test and your grades are going to depend on it. That book is all marked up with yellow highlighter, isn't it? We're careful. We want to be sure that we're understanding and knowing. We know that we'll be held accountable. It's more quality than quantity. Since we know that we'll be held accountable for this time that we have here on earth, how should we then live? Should it make a difference? Too often we forget. I forget. That's human nature. We think this is all there is. It's just a very small point in the line of eternity. But it matters. It matters to God. There will be a day when we will be held accountable. We need to understand that. We need to read, read that book as though there's going to be a test, because there is. What comes with that is, again, expectation and responsibility. See, we're, it's given, we're given with talents. Everything that we have is essentially belongs to God. We'll be talking more about that next week, but everything that we have essentially belongs to God. And we'll be held accountable not just for doing wrong, because we fall into that sometimes, blatant, unrepentant sin, but we're also held accountable for what we did not do. That's right from James chapter 4, verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. See, we're of the type that says, but I didn't violate any written policy. And it's like the one talent servant. I didn't steal your money, I just went and buried it. James 4, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. There's that expectation and responsibility that we have. It's not like Scripture is an instruction manual that we're just supposed to mindlessly follow. No, we're supposed to enter into a deep relationship with God and know what his heart is, so that then that's how we hold the things that he has blessed us with, be it money or whatever talent. And not to hold on to it tightly. See, sometimes we're like that. We've seen that picture before where you have whatever it is God has blessed you with. You're holding it in your hand and God would like to pry it away one finger at a time, but no. I don't want to do that. It's mine. Never was yours to begin with. Never was mine to begin with. It belongs to Him. And the more that we can hold that out to Him, the deeper we'll go in a relationship with Him. They go hand in hand. The stewardship and the relationship. He's looking for that relationship. But too often we just hold on to our things as if somehow we're going to be able to take them with us. What a useless exercise. There's an expectation that I will choose to use it in some way for God's glory. Another application is this. Stewardship involves risk. The one talent student, uh, student, servant refused to take risk. I'm going to go bury it. You realize the other two, they took a significant amount of risk. I mean, the five-talent guy, he could have gone and buried it too, but no. He's going to put all five talents to work 
and he did so and earned five more. We like comfort. We like control. And when God gives us things, we want to hold on to them because then we can control them. For us to take them in an open hand before God and say, it's yours, that takes risk. By nature, we don't do that. We say, God, thank you. Stick it in our pocket. Can I have more? That's not what he meant. He means hold it out. Let me use it. That's risk. You don't like risk. I don't like risk either. I want to be able to control things. I want to be comfortable. To have something where he gives me and then says, Oh, and by the way, what I gave you, I want you to use it for my glory. Ooh. That's going to be scary. But that's what he's looking for. And lastly, relationship. Look at the relationship of the one-talent servant to his master. Look at verses 24 and 25. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seeds. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. My friends, that's a dysfunctional relationship. That says something about the relationship of that servant to the master. What kind of relationship do we have with God? Is it that dysfunctional? Are we holding on to those things and burying them and saying, I can't possibly give that over to you, Lord? No way. Now speculate a moment with me here. Do you think maybe that servant said, why did I only get one? (laughs) Did he feel left out? Maybe he felt he deserved the five talents? Let me tell you something. The landowner could have given him nothing and said, go work in the fields. You realize that? None of the servants were entitled to anything. We have a culture of entitlement today. Somehow we think that what we have, we deserve it. We don't deserve anything. We deserve to be the servant that goes out and works in the field. That entitlement culture says that everything has to be just and fair because some of us might feel sorry for that one-talent servant. Well, you know what? God determines what is just and fair. It doesn't always line up with what our human definition is. Talk to Job about that. God is just and fair. But we are not entitled to that. We've got to get that out of our minds that somehow we don't have to do this or that because God didn't bless me with as much so I don't have to do anything with it. That's the one servant that does not have a relationship with his master. God is sovereign. He is the one who determines just and fair. I have no right to complain before God about the number of talents he has given me. The one-talent servant also makes excuses for his lack of showing results. He blame shifts. 
That's another common element I often hear today. I used to think it had to do with age and maturity. Now I think it's just sin nature. We all do it. It's someone else's fault. It's the master's fault because you were a hard man and I was afraid so I buried the treasure. That's making excuses. We do that throughout our lives, throughout our relationships. It's not my fault. That's a dangerous thing to slip into. Because we, and you know what ends up happening? We tell ourselves that and then we believe it. And you can't be convinced otherwise because you've come to believe that somehow what happened, it was not my fault. It was somebody else's fault. They made me do it. My husband or wife made me do this. My children made me. They, they forced me to this place of, of whatever it is, wherever I'm at. It's because of them. That's dysfunctional. You know a good remedy for that? Some solid Christian brothers and sisters who come around you and recognize it when you're lying to yourself and will tell you. Not a pleasant thing. Believe me. But otherwise, left to ourselves, we just blame shift. This is somebody else's fault. That's what the servant did. It's because you're such a hard master. I, I, I went and buried. No. See, the one-talent servant misinterpreted misinterpreted his master's actions, painted him as someone impossible to please. You anybody like that? Impossible to please? Ever felt that way? Maybe with your boss, maybe with your parents, maybe with a teacher? Let me tell you something. It's probably true. Because we're human beings. We are impossible to please. Because our desires change so much. We can be impossible to please. But with God, understand that the only way to please God is through trusting His Son as my Savior from sin. But then the works that I do, the things that I do, the talents that I offer up to Him, those are pleasing to Him. In reality, the one-talent servant's response is just a reflection of a poor relationship with his master. It wasn't that he was just simply, simply a hoarder or, or, or didn't want to do what the master wanted him to do. It began with the fact that he had a poor or dysfunctional relationship with his master. Where are we with our stewardship? Ever wonder why we struggle with that? Could it have anything to do with the fact that our relationship with God needs to be much, much stronger? That's where it needs to start. It's that relationship with God that's going to bring us to a place of good stewardship of the things that he's blessed us with. The one-talent servant in verse 26 is called slothful and lazy. Get this. God's going to hold us accountable not only for what we do, bury the talent, but why, because I'm afraid of God, dysfunctional relationship, and how, because I'm lazy and short-sighted. Held accountable for all of that. Now, we have to be careful how not to apply this. Okay? We have to be careful not to misinterpret and assess the five, two, or one talent category based on outward appearance. 
Humans do that. It's just nature. Okay? You might be thinking that the person, the very wealthy person sitting next to you is the person with the five talents. And you're just the one or two. No, no, no. That wealthy person, that might be the one talent God has given him or her. You might be the one with the five. Think about that. What has God blessed you with? Could there be much more than simple money? I mean, this is one of the things. Some of us are gifted. Some of us have hearts that want to reach out to those who are broken. Some of us have so much to offer God, and yet we hold on to him. We say, oh good, that's not about me because I'm not rich. That's not what he's talking about. Stewardship is stewardship of everything that we are. Be it our talents, our treasure, our time. Some of you have time on your hands. Some of you have treasure. Some of you have talents. All of it goes on the plate and is held up to God and says, here. And that's a hard, hard thing to do. And I think it's something, at least personally for me, it doesn't just happen once. It's something that has to be constantly on my mind and I'm continually seeking God on so that it's a process for me. Because I still sometimes hold them up and say, here it is. And God says, what, what are you going to pocket there? Oh, nothing. I just, don't worry about that. Do we do that sometimes? And you, and you know who did that in Scripture? Not to scare anybody, okay? Just but, uh, uh, Acts chapter 5, Ananias, Sapphira. They had to drag him out the door. Okay, and again, I don't, don't want to scare anybody. But just remember, when there's something that God gives you, you put it on that plate and say, here, what do you want me to do with it? It's yours anyway. What do you want me to do with it? Nor could the story rule out the possibility that we could be a five-talent servant and run out and bury all five. That could happen. So many of us might be talented, might be able to generate wealth, or whatever it is, and we go out and bury it. That's just as bad as the one-talent servant. Well, how do we do this? This has to come down to saying, okay, this is some nice thoughts. In a practical sense. Let me give you caution here before we say some, some how to do this. Begin first with building a strong relationship. You want to talk about stewardship? You want to talk about honoring God with everything that you have and everything you are? Begin first with the strong relationship. Pursue the relationship. Don't try to do the stewardship without the relationship. That's the whole point of the parable. Concentrate on the relationship. I can't tell you how many couples uh, and individuals, Anita and I, in the years, in past years, have gone through and, and counseled and helped. And that's one of the things we hammer again and again is okay, if you, get, you can know how to work that Excel spreadsheet, but I'll tell you what, that's not stewardship. Stewardship is relationship, it begins with a relationship with God. Throw the Excel spreadsheet away. If you're using just that without the relationship, forget it. You're just going through the motions. Begin by pursuing a deep, deep relationship with God. Because then you'll know his heart. Otherwise, if you're doing the stewardship without him, without him, you're just making it up. Oh, this sounds good and this looks good to other people, so I'll do this. No, 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 no. Know his heart. Be careful. You might be surprised with what you come, come away with. I've read of individuals um, who, get this, 
have learned to live on 10% of their income and given away the other 90%. Amazing. It's dangerous. If you really pray that, you really mean that, be careful. You don't know what God's going to do. Have you ever been on the uh, receiving end of a progress review or a performance evaluation? Maybe your boss has given you one. What do you remember the most? The negative. I can tell you from decades ago, some of my performance evaluations, I don't remember anything about them except the negative. See what Jesus, what God gives for a performance evaluation here? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Oh, to hear that. That would erase everything else. That's what we want inside of us. Inside every one of us, we desire to hear that. Even now, with our earthly parents or boss or whomever, we want to hear that well done. Just think of that. Just think of that. If you or I stood before God and he looked at all that we had done in this short time on earth and he said that, well done. Oh, to me that would be the most awesome experience to hear those words come from God's mouth. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. Do you want to be a good steward of what God has given you? Pursue the relationship. Don't get caught up in counting your nickels to make sure that you've given exactly 10%. That's not stewardship. Um, Jesus said something about that with the Pharisees in Luke chapter 11. But then he said, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you, the tithe, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. Because they were so concerned with being exact that even their herbs, their very tiniest things, their spices, they would tie up 10%. Give them the whole jar. What's up with that? And we do that. We say, oh, as long as I give my type 10%, I'm good to go. That's not what God's talking about. First of all, he wants that deep relationship with us. From that, from that, we can then understand what true stewardship is. We can know how to steward for eternity as we know God's heart. Not by simply following a list of instructions. Get to know God's heart. Good stewardship comes about through wise choices which stem from a strong relationship with God. Can you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for teaching us from your word. We thank you that you indeed love us We thank you that you have watched over us and cared for us and provided so much for us. We thank you for those blessings. It's our desire. And we express this, Father, as a desire of our hearts that you would teach us how to have that relationship so that we can be good stewards of what you have given us. All that we have, all that we are, we want to be able to commit to you. So teach us how to do that. And we will thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So prayers counselors will be coming in a moment.